The passage we'll be looking at this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 20, verses 19 through 26. You could find it in your bulletin. You could follow in your own Bibles. And if you will, if you're able, if you'd please stand for the reading of the Word of God. Gospel of Luke, chapter 20, verses 19 through 26. Scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that, they had, that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and he said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. Would you please be seated, and would you join me in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we ask that you would be here with us this morning for the reading and the preaching of your word. We ask that you would apply that word to our hearts by your spirit. We ask, Lord God, that it would be living and active, discerning between soul and spirit, bone and marrow. And we ask, Lord God, that you would do that for your glory and for our good. We thank you for this, your word, and for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you've reconciled us to yourself, and we pray, Lord, that this would now be used for our sanctification. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, in 1789, uh, Benjamin Franklin, in speaking about this new country of America, he said these words, and I'm sure most of you are probably familiar or have heard these words before. He said, our new constitution is now established, and it has the appearance of that promises permanency. But in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. You've, like I said, probably heard that quote before. It is interesting this morning that the men who confront Jesus in Luke chapter 20, verse 19, they deal with both subjects. They are seeking the death of Jesus, and they are doing so through a conversation about taxes. That's where this conversation is going. Now, we have to understand as we look at this passage that the question that is posed to Jesus puts him into a sort of lose-lose situation. There is no good way out of this question. For the Romans had grown tired of the Israelites and their rebellion and their restlessness. And the Israelites had grown tired of the Romans, their oppression, and, and they're uh, 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 pushing down upon the people of Israel. And so it is said that if Jesus had answered in the negative, or in the positive, if Jesus had answered in the positive, yes, to pay taxes to Caesar, that the people would have rejected him and they would have wanted nothing to do with him. 
And if Jesus had answered in the negative, not to pay taxes to Caesar, that they would have turned him over to the officials and he would have been killed. It is at this moment that Caesar Tiberius had changed the definitions of treason. Not only had treason become an action against the Roman government, but it was any speech against the Roman government, punishable by death. So you could see how Jesus found himself in a lose-lose situation. This morning, as we look at this passage, we will find that Jesus doesn't, though, simply evade the question or elude their line of reasoning. He uses the opportunity to propel us into a conversation about the responsibility of followers of Christ, both to God and to the governing authorities that are over them. Now, this morning, as we look at this passage, let me say, I, I wasn't able to bring my whiteboard this morning, okay? So, no visual illustration, but let me tell you this. If you're a visual learner, I would say take a coin out from your pocketbook, your purse, your wallet, or your pocket. Now, you might not be a visual learner. Or for the children, I think this is a great picture, okay? It will help you to understand the passage this morning. Because we're focusing on verses 23 through 25, that is the words of Jesus. That is the, the, the primary thrust of this passage. And so let me read those words, and then we talk about why this coin, I think, will be important as we look at the passage. Beginning in verse 23 of chapter 20, it says, But he perceived their craftiness, and he said to them, Show me a denarius, whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the thing, things that are Caesar's, and render to God the things that are God. Jesus, in response to this uh, a very delicate or complicated line of questioning, he asked them to produce a denarius. Now, a denarius was a coin of sort of significant value during this time period. It was not a Jewish coin. It was a Roman coin. And so there on the spot, they produce a denarius, much like my quarter, okay? And he asked them then whose image is upon the denarius. Now, if, if you grabbed a coin, like I said, and I don't think many of you grabbed a coin out of your purse, and that's okay. If you had, though, you would find that your coin has the picture of George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Abe Lincoln, maybe even a Kennedy, all right? And you would find their picture on your coin. Now, much like your coin that would have a picture of a president upon it, the denarius that was produced in Jesus' presence for all to see would have had the image of Tiberius Caesar. He was Caesar from 14 A.D. to 37 A.D., and around the image of Caesar would have been these words in Latin. It would have said, Tiberius, Caesar, Augustus, divine son of Caesar. Okay, that's what the words literally would have said on the coin. Jesus asked his audience whose image and inscription is upon the coin. And then he says to them, well, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Render to God the things that are God's. Literally, render to him the things that... Uh, have his face upon them, render to him the things that are due to him. He uses the coin as a visible illustration to his audience. And this morning, as we talk about this passage, as we look at those two verses with Jesus' words, we're going to specifically focus on a particular word in this passage. It is the word render, the English word render. The Greek version of the English is the word apodidomai. I've written it in the insert in your bulletin, apodidomai. Now, it's significant uh, for a variety of reasons, but not the least of which is it's a compound word. Didomai is the word to give. Apo is more of a prepositional phrase, okay? 
Now, if Jesus had meant simply to tell the people, give to Caesar and give to God what is theirs, he would have used the word didomai. Instead, he uses the word apodidomai. Apodidomai, most commentators believe, is a word that means to give back, to return, or to repay. It appears 46 times in the New Testament, approximately 40 of those times, it means to repay or to give back. I'll give you one example. In Matthew chapter 16, it says, the Son of Man, when He returns, He will repay everyone according to His deeds. And so there, again, the word is translated as repay. Now, if you understand that about Jesus' words, you understand that Jesus means more than just give to Caesar or give to God or even to render to God. Rather, he's speaking about a repayment. It is a reciprocal relationship, as if something has been given to us, and now we are obligated in some form or fashion to give back to Caesar or to give back to governing authorities and to give back to God what is his. I would suggest to you this morning as we look at this passage, that will begin to broaden our understanding of what Jesus is saying. It will also challenge some of our preconceived notions and idols about what it looks like to be obedient to both God and governing authorities. This morning, the overarching theme I've kind of written in your handout is that the Christian is both obligated to governing authorities and obligated to God Himself. And so we're going to talk about that obligation. First of all, what does the obligation to God and the obligation to governing authorities, what is it, uh, what, what's similar about those obligations? What do they have in common? There's a few things that come out of this passage that we recognize about both obligations to governing authorities and to God. First of all, as we look at this passage, again, we see that there is indeed an obligation. And let me tell you how the obligation is played out. This Luke chapter 20 is really the prelude or the introduction to what Jesus will later say through the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 13. You remember Romans 13. This is what Paul says in Romans 13. He says, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of you, for because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. See, in that sense, as Jesus speaks here in Luke 20, as we get an elaboration from Paul in Romans 13, we realize that by God, governments have been instituted, and to both, we have an obligation. The obligation to God is that as our Creator, He has made us, and now in a sense, our whole self is obligated to Him, but in the same sort of derivative way, governments have been instituted over us. And they give to us something, and therefore, in return, citizens under those authorities are obligated to those governing authorities. Even as Jesus speaks about the Roman government, we can see that the Roman government over the Jews at this moment are responsible for their welfare and for the administration of their government and for providing them and for defending them from evil and protecting what is good. All of that as a function of the government therefore makes the followers of Christ obligated 
to give not only of their taxes and revenue, but also of honor and of respect, as Jesus again will say in Romans 13. They, he uses words like subjection and owing. That is the context for which Jesus speaks here in Luke chapter 20. And yet Jesus, I think, will go even further. For one of the things that is true of both our obligation to God and to the authorities that have been placed over us is that Jesus, when he speaks on this issue, he never gives us a caveat to that uh, uh, obligation that we have. And that is to say, Jesus doesn't say to his followers, listen, render to Caesar what is Caesar's unless Caesar is a real jerk or unless the government really isn't what you think it ought to be. Or unless you find yourself in a very tough situation, finding it hard to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Jesus doesn't offer us that caveat. Now, we know that when governments overstep their bounds, they call us to do what God has instructed us not to do. That is when we are able to throw off this obligation to governments. But I believe that Jesus, in exhorting us here, recognizes the propensity of human nature. And what is true of both God and governing authorities is that by human nature, we naturally don't want to be obligated to either. Born in sin, recognizing that we have a creator and have obligation to him, we want nothing to do with it. That is the natural state of humanity. And I believe Jesus recognizes that the natural state of humanity is likewise towards governing authorities that we want no obligation to those who are over us. And so Jesus offers no caveat. He simply calls his hearers to render to Caesar what is Caesar's. I think that's significant if we understand the context of Jesus' speech on this denarius given the circumstances both before and after this passage take place. You see, Jesus, as he draws the attention to this denarius and he says whose image is upon it and then he calls his followers to rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's, it is the same Jesus who recognizes that for the last hundred years, the Romans have oppressed the people of God, that they have, at every attempt, they have thwarted their, their uh, freedom, they have rejected any sense of independence, and they have oppressed the people of Israel. It is the same Jesus who just 10 verses earlier was speaking about his uh, impending death. The same Jesus who recognizes that just in a few days, the Roman authorities will conduct a mock trial and they will crucify him. It is the same Jesus who recognized in 30 years that the Romans would enter into Jerusalem and level the city and destroy the temple. The same Jesus who recognizes that in 100 years, as the young church is growing, that it is the Roman authorities who would uh, take and capture the Christians and put them in the Colosseum and would feed them to lions and would burn them at the stake. Jesus, recognizing all of this about the Roman government and about Caesar, yet calls his audience, holding up the coin, whose image is upon it, then render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Could you imagine? You see, I, I think that's challenging for us because whatever you think about the last president or the current president, whether you liked them or you hated them, the last governor or the current governor will be sworn in a few days, whatever you think about your local governments and the House of Delegates and everyone who is placed in authority above you, I can guarantee they're not as corrupt or tyrannical as the government to which Jesus called his hearers to obedience. 
and to rendering to them what is theirs, to paying taxes, to submitting themselves, and giving respect and honor. And so as we think about this passage this morning, the rendering uh, to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's would call us to a level of obedience that is not natural to us. I think this summer I shared with you this quote from uh, Calvin, John Calvin, his institutes, and I would uh, read it again because I do believe it's powerful, and every time I hear it, it is convicting to me, okay? So here's what Calvin says of these authorities that have been placed over us. He says, unfortunately, it happens more often than not that most rulers forsake the proper path. Some who are heedless of their duty, they slumber in their pleasures and their delights. Others who are bent on greed auction off all laws and privileges and rights and legal judgments. Others tear from the wretched populace to fund their lavish excess. Others resort to downright banditry by looting houses and murdering the innocent. Thus, many cannot easily be convinced that such men should be recognized as rulers who must be obeyed as much as possible. Amid vices so hideous and unnatural, not only in the office of a magistrate, but on humankind itself, they see in their superior no sign of God's image which should shine forth in a magistrate. And they discern in him nothing of a minister of God appointed to praise the good and punish the bad. There is no doubt that deep in men's hearts there has always been the inclination to hate and to curse tyrants as much as to love and revere just kings. However, if we set our sights on the word of God, it will lead us further. For it will make us obedient not only to the authority of rulers who do their work honestly and who faithfully discharge their duties, but also to all who are in any way of superior rank. However far they may be from doing all that their position requires, whatever they are like and however they behave, they have power to rule only from God. That was Calvin's instruction to his church. It was his exhortation to the church at large as they considered what it looked like to follow the words of Christ here in Luke chapter 20. It is not our natural inclination, but I think it is the calling of God on the life of the Christian to follow him in subjection to the authorities over him, both God and human government. Now, as much as there are some ways that the obligation on the Christian is similar both to God and to the authority over them, there are some important ways that it is different. And let me emphasize those ways in this passage. You see, by saying give to Caesar or give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give back to God what is God, God's, Jesus, in a sense, begins to draw the lines of distinction. For we know as that coin was held up in, uh, in front of the audience that surrounded Jesus, that it again bore that inscription, uh, Tiberius Caesar, divine son of Augustus Caesar, okay? And we know that there was this claim among the Roman Caesars that they were indeed divine, that the people ought to pay homage to them as being divine, that there was a deity among the Caesars. And yet, as Jesus makes a distinction between the obligation to human authorities and the obligation to God, he recognizes before his audience that these are two different types of obligation, two different types of rendering. You see, Jesus' audience, I think, would have hear him, heard him saying, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and that is taxes, and that is respect, and that is honor, but give to God 
what is God's. And that is comprehensive. It involves the whole man. It involves all of life. You see, Jesus was essentially saying to those around him, Caesar is a temporal king put in place by God over a temporal kingdom, and to him you owe a sort of temporal derivative obedience. It comes from God, and it is not the same as the obligation that you have towards your God. I think that is an important distinction because I think there's another inclination in the hearts of humankind to begin to look at human governments and authorities as if they can provide the things that only God can provide. And so we have this inclination to think that the government can do for me the things I cannot do for myself. That the government can provide for my family. The government can make wrong things right. That the government can uh, make me have a better life. That if we just get the right government or the right kind of government, then my problems will be taken care of. And to that, Jesus says it is not true. For only God can provide for those types of needs. You see, I, I think if there's I think there's many things we've learned over the last two years, but one of the things I think we've learned is that governments don't have the answers for humanity, that the problems that face humanity through sin and brokenness will not be answered by human authority, that these things are only answered by God. And so governing authorities who have been placed over us, they have a sort of derivative power. It is given by God, instituted by Him, and to that we owe a derivative type of obedience. But then Jesus will speak about rendering to God what is God's. And that will begin to illustrate for us the type of obligation or obedience that is owed to our God. Now, I think there is something significant in this passage. I have to say, this is not my own observation, but I found it to be um, extremely profound. And so I'd like to point it out to you this morning. This is how we begin to understand the obligation that we have to our God in reading this passage. You see, when Jesus asks his audience to produce a denarius, and then he asks them again the question in verse 24, show me a denarius, whose likeness and inscription does it have? And you remember it had the likeness of Tiberius Caesar, the Caesar of the day. The word that is used here by Jesus is the Greek word akon, okay? E-I-K-O-N, right? In the Greek, akon. It's where we get our English word icon. It means an image. It means a version of, a, a picture of. Uh, and that's the word that's translated here as likeness. Now, that word is significant. It's used um, kind of infrequently in Scripture. But one place it does appear in Genesis chapter 1 in the Greek version of the Old Testament. So here's a little background. I'm sure you're familiar with this. The, the Old Testament is originally written in Hebrew. The entire Old Testament, it comes together, it's one uh, Hebrew Old Testament. And after the Jews are dispersed in the 600s and 700s B.C., uh, they are in captivity. And a generation after generation, the people begin to forget the Hebrew language. So sometime around the 300s and the 200s B.C., the Jews begin to translate the Old Testament from Hebrew to Greek. And that's the Septuagint version of the Old Testament. That is the version that Jesus often quotes from. And in the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God says, let us make man in our own icon, icon, the Greek word, icon. Let us make man in our own image, after our likeness. And there goes a coin, 
That's great. I love it. Somebody used a coin. That's wonderful. Let us make man in our own image. The same exact word that Jesus uses here in Luke chapter 20. Now, I think as you begin to think through this comparison, let's compare apples to apples. There are implications then for what it means to give back to God what is God's. Because here's what Jesus has just said to his audience. Look at the coin. Whose icon does it bear? It bears Caesar. Okay? So then I tell you, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And this coin then is the authoritative representation of the government over you. And to them you render taxes. And to them you render respect. And to them you render obedience. Right? That's the correlation between the image of Caesar on the coin and the things that we are obligated to give to them. See, then by implication, what does it mean for the Christian? The image of God. The image of God is on you, okay? The image of God has been stamped on each of you. It is when you look in the mirror, there is the image of God. It is to the left and to the right of you. And if you bear the image of God, then this broadens greatly what it means to render to God what is God's, okay? For rendering to Caesar... Again, rendering taxes and respect and honor. Rendering to God what is God's means giving Him our whole self. It means giving of our entire identity. It means giving of everything we have. It means giving back to God who has made us and saved us out of every ounce of our being. That's the call of Christ here this morning as He speaks to His followers about rendering to God the things that are God's. We bear the image of God. Therefore, we have this great obligation to the Lord our God to render of our whole selves in return to Him out of obedience according to His word. The beautiful truth of the gospel then and what we'll talk about as we celebrate the Lord's Supper is this, that we are unable to do what we are obligated to do, to do what is required of us, to render our whole selves to the Lord our God. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ came. And what he did was he gave him his whole self. He emptied himself out. He gave of everything that he had. He poured himself out for the sake, our sake, and before the Father in obedience. And because he has done that, he has reconciled us to the Father that we might not do this perfectly, but we might do it more and more to the glory of God giving of our whole selves. It's the beauty of the gospel. It is why we gather together each Sunday morning. It is why we talk about what it looks like to live as Christians that we might give of ourselves, not only out of obedience, but out of thanksgiving, out of generosity, out of gratitude, which has been produced in us by the work of Jesus through His Spirit who now dwells in us. That's the calling that Christ offers to his people here in Luke chapter 20. Would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you have brought us together this morning, that we might learn and grow, that our idols might be challenged that we might see more of our identity in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we might grow more and more to be like Him in His image. And we thank You, our Lord and our God, that You are doing this work for Your glory, 
and we ask that you would continue this work among your people. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, and we thank you that he used every opportunity, every challenge, every critique, every attempt to take his life, every moment he used as an opportunity both to teach us of not only what it is to live as followers of Christ, but of our great need for him. We thank you and we praise you this morning. It is in your name we pray. Amen.